Okay, guys, if you brought a Bible, this would be the time to grab it, open it up, turn it on. We're going to look at the book of Nehemiah, which is where we've been for the last few weeks. We are working our way through this incredible book in the Old Testament entitled Nehemiah, written by Nehemiah. And this morning, we are going to simply pick up where we left off, which is about halfway through chapter two. Are you guys ready? Okay, I'm not ready. Give me one sec. All right. Here we go. Nehemiah chapter 2, we're going to start in verse 9 and read up through the end of the chapter this morning. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen, but when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me, but the one on which I rode. I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gate. And I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that, I was, that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall. And I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing. I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. Then I said to them, verse 17, You see the trouble we are in? How Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned? Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, what is this thing that you were doing? Are you rebelling against the king? And then I replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper and we his servants will arise and build. But you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. Father, help us as we consider uh, these words, this unique event in the history of your people Israel. Lord, would you teach us? Would you help us to understand what you were doing then that we might get to know you better now? Would you help us as we consider the things that you want to say to your church here in Portland? In Jesus' name. Amen. So just a quick catch up in terms of context. Where we're at in the story is Nehemiah had received word 
that Jerusalem, the city of God, this very special city for the Jewish people, um, was in ruins. Although the temple had been rebuilt and had been standing for some time, the city itself was in shambles. Um, It was essentially still inhabited. The walls were completely torn down. There were no gates, so it was completely insecure. It was unprotected. It was, in essence, not really a city at all. Um, There were probably some people sort of living in the city, but there wasn't any actual home, community, commerce, etc. And so when Nehemiah gets the news, he's heartbroken. He's devastated. He'd obviously hoped for something more. And it said that he mourned for several days. He was processing the pain of unmet expectations. Eventually he had the opportunity to come before the emperor of Persia, King Artaxerxes. And the king could see that Nehemiah was upset. And this could have been a very, very dangerous situation because he was a slave. Slaves weren't meant to show emotion or show any concern for themselves. Their job was solely to attend to the king. And yet Nehemiah apparently couldn't keep it in. And so the king said, what's your problem? Why are you sad? And Nehemiah spills his guts. He takes a massive risk. And he tells him, my, my, the city where my fathers are buried, it's in shambles. I've lost my nation, my people. And he asked the king, the brother, the king asked him, what do you desire? What do you want? What do you want? Talk to me. And so Nehemiah says, look, I need, I need to go see for myself what's happening. I need safe passage. I need supplies. Um, and I need to go. And the king miraculously says, fine, take all the time you need. Here's a letter for safe passage. And uh, you have all of the resources you might need. Go, do what you've got to do. And so he does. Now he's in Jerusalem and he's assessing the situation. He sneaks out by night. Apparently he wants to see for himself uh, the extent of the damage to see what he's really gotten himself into before he, he casts the vision and invites the people who are there to, to take part in rebuilding this thing. Um, and so he does. And that's what we've just read. Pretty simple. I love the part, perhaps one of my favorite lines in the whole book, where after he's told the people, look, at this is, this is why I'm here. I've actually gotten permission from the king of the empire to come and and, and I want to I rebuild the city. I want to begin to work on these walls. And are you with me? And the people respond positively. And they say, let us arise and build. Kind of inspiring, honestly. Now, if, if on a, in just a base level, if we were to simply consider the, the kind of example this is, uh, to anyone who's trying to rebuild something broken in their lives, whether it's our city which, you know, is not a stretch by, by any means. You go downtown, the place is kind of in shambles, probably not like Jerusalem in shambles, um, but our city needs some rebuilding. Of course, you could consider just even our, our lives. Um, you know, we, we still talk quite a bit about all that happened in the wake of 2020, the relationships, the marriages, our mental health, the community, all of these more subjective aspects of our lives that need rebuilding. 
And I just love the heart of this man, Nehemiah, who comes along. It looks at the extent of the damage, and instead of just getting frustrated and going home, giving up, or I suppose one might expect him to like lead a rebellion, say, let's, let's get whoever did this. Let's, let's take revenge. Let's retaliate. But he doesn't. Instead, he says, you know what? Let's rebuild. Let's build again. Because I believe God's not done. Not with our lives, not with his people, not with this city. And so the people respond and say, Let, let's do it. Let us arise and build. And it says, so they strengthened their hands for the good work. And they got busy. That's awesome. It's inspiring. But that's definitely not the end of the story. That's not really even the point of the story. As we talked about last week, as we considering the, the narrative in the Old Testament, specifically, Jesus instructs us. He tells his disciples that, that these things that happened in the past, they are instructive, and they actually provide examples for us, although I would point out again that many of the examples aren't necessarily like, be like Nehemiah. It's more like, here's a long history of examples of how people failed terribly when they stopped trusting in the goodness and grace of God. So there, are, there is an example there, but really it's, it's a shadow of something else more substantial. That's how Jesus described it. That's how the New Testament writers viewed it, that these things that happened in the past are meant to make us look forward and consider what was God really up to all along. A few centuries um, would end up going by, and they would build the wall. Ends up taking them 52 days to build this wall, which is quite incredible. I've been to Jerusalem. It's, it's a tiny city, but big enough. And they rebuild these walls and these gates in 52 days. It's an incredible, um, incredible thing when people come together. Centuries will go by, and eventually Jesus is born. We're told in John chapter 2 that one day Jesus went to the temple. Um, John has such a unique uh, perspective. He remembers and, and re, uh, re, recounts some of the, the unique details of Jesus' life and ministry that we don't get in the other Gospels. In John chapter 2, he describes how one time Jesus went to the temple. He may have done this a couple times, depending upon how you read it. But Jesus went to the temple, and he looked around, and he saw all the tables and the money changers, and they had this whole elaborate system set up for people who were coming from foreign lands to make sacrifices to the, the Hebrew God, Yahweh. But in order to do that, they would have to buy uh, doves and small animals to make blood sacrifices to the temple. Before they could do that, they would have to exchange their foreign currency for temple currency, clean money. And this is all very ancient and kind of weird from my perspective, but this is what they did. And you could argue that the money changers perhaps thought that they were actually doing the foreigners a service, but in effect, what they were doing were creating walls, like barriers, making it difficult for the outsiders to come in and participate in worship. And Jesus recognized it for what it was. 
And in this particular account, in John chapter 2, we're told that Jesus actually began to make a whip. And he drives out all the money changers as well as the sheep and the oxen. And he cleans house. He says, this is not good. My father's house is meant to be a house of prayer for all nations. And you're messing it up. So he drives them out. And then, of course, the, the religious officials, the authorities, naturally question Jesus. And they say, they say, by what authority are you doing this? And he says, tear this temple down. Watch me rebuild it in three days. Kind of cryptic. Of course, they naturally think, like, you're out of your mind. Our forefathers uh, took almost 50 years, 46 years to build this temple. And now you're telling us to tear it down and you'll rebuild it in three. You're out of your mind. Makes sense why they eventually began to accuse Jesus of being demon-possessed. Right? This, this dude's insane. Later on, of course, um, the disciples and virtually everyone realizes that Jesus was not talking about the actual temple which would be teared down in 70 AD when the Romans would invade Jerusalem, they would raise the second temple to the ground. And all that was left was a big old rock. Now, about 500 years, 600 years later, they ended up building a mosque on that rock in Jerusalem called the Dome of the Rock. I can't remember what the mosque is called. I, don't, I couldn't pronounce it even if I could remember. But the temple would be torn down about 30, 40 years later when the Romans would invade. And Jesus would come back from the dead three days later. And he would establish a new kind of temple built on a slightly different rock. Later on, um, Jesus is having a conversation with his disciples is kind of a famous Jesus moment. Even if you're not a churchy person, you might know this one. Jesus is becoming quite well known in the region. And people are beginning to speculate, who is Jesus? Who is this rabbi? What are these miracles, these alleged miracles that we keep hearing about? Are they real? Is Jesus real? Is he for real? So everyone's speculating, who is this Jesus? And eventually he asks his disciples, who do you say that I am? Peter famously says, you're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. And Jesus is like, nailed it. Blessed are you, Simon Peter. Simon Peter, son of Jonah. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father in heaven He's giving you a revelation. This is, this is a miraculous insight that you've stumbled upon. And I call you Peter, Petros, which in Greek sounds a little bit like the Greek word for rock. And he says, upon this rock, I shall build my church and not even the gates of hell, Sheol, shall prevail against it. Jesus begins to talk about a new kind of thing that's going to be built on a radically different rock. What are we building? Nehemiah was building a wall. Now, to be fair, there's still a wall around Jerusalem. It's a really, really tall, thick steel wall. 
covered with graffiti. You could debate all day long about that. It's crazy to think how thousands of years later, people are still dying, fighting, violence being done, blood being shed because of this, this rock. That's where the latest thing went down because of um, some Israeli police officers who stormed in and basically cut the power cord to the, the amplifier for the, the Muslim prayers happening in that mosque on that rock just like a couple months ago. Started a riot which turned into a war again. It's crazy. What is God building? Jesus said, on this rock, I will build my church. I will build my church. Jesus is building his church. Later on, Peter ends up writing about this building project, this church that Jesus is building. Let me read this to you. We're actually going to, we're going to camp here for a minute. First Peter, this is his first letter, chapter 2. He says this, starting in verse 4. As you come to him, as we come to Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up, as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Jesus is building a different kind of temple, a spiritual house, and we're it. What are you building? What do you think we're building as a church family? This is a really, really important question. I recently just finished building cabinets in a closet. Can I confess to you how ridiculously lame it is, how satisfied I felt just building? And this is like, I, I, I was so, so proud of myself and also equally embarrassed at how proud of myself I was for just simply building shelves in a closet. There's something deeply satisfying about building something. I don't know, maybe it's like the stereotypical male thing. I don't know. I don't think so. My wife is quite a builder. In fact, I know a lot of women who are incredible builders. But I built this thing. And there is something satisfying. I think there's something human about wanting to build something. Wanting to know that like my life counts and there's a reason for being here. And I've been given gifts and time and breath. And I'd like to, to utilize my life and know that at the end like I, I contributed to the world and, and I and I actually left something behind. But what are we building? What are we building? Because I think sometimes we can expend a lot of energy building something that's not really that satisfying or helpful. I don't know that the world needs more walls and I hate getting into the political stuff, but uh, does the world need more walls? I know I need walls in my house. We need walls downstairs. Walls can serve a sort of uh, utilitarian purpose. But what is God really into? What is the church really meant to be expending our energy on? The church. 
Jesus is building his church. And he describes it as a spiritual house, a temple filled with a holy priesthood who are offering sacrifices. I know when you get to the New Testament, the writers begin to sort of like confuse all of these metaphors um, where on one hand, the church is described as uh, God's field, but then we're also the farmers. Uh, we're considered to be the, um, the house, but also the builders. We are the building and the builders, and all of these sort of spiritual metaphors begin to get blended together. And it's just like Jesus. Jesus himself said, tear this temple down, and I will rebuild it in three days. Jesus himself is the new temple. But he is also the high priest who intercedes on our behalf, but he is also the sacrificial lamb. Like he is all these things at once in the same way in Jesus as God's kids, we too become the building, the priesthood, and the sacrifice, all meant to reflect who God is in Christ. And if you feel confused, I think that's, that's we're, we're on the right track. It's all of those things. When Peter describes this spiritual house, he, he says it begins by God picking up, well, what would have been dead stones and calling them living stones. Do you know the dif difference between a dead stone and a living stone? So I learned this uh, about 15 years ago. I mentioned that I was in Jerusalem. Um, our, our, God, our guide, Arye Bar-David, taught me this. He said, a dead stone is just a rock sitting all by itself out in the middle of some field. The dead stone becomes living when a builder picks it up and places it in the house, places it in the wall. It's incredible when we were living in the UK, Scotland in particular, John McCabe, you guys probably saw this, but all across the Scottish countryside, you would see these incredibly large, vast, just sort of like pasture land and rock walls for miles and miles and miles. All of those walls are built out of rocks that were once just scattered in the field. Dead rocks, useless rocks, ugly rocks, unhelpful rocks. Until someone came along, picked them up, and put them in their place. And it became living. That's the metaphor. God comes along and he finds a dead, useless rock, picks it up, and he says, no, this is perfect. This is precious. I've chosen this rock for a purpose. That's where we start out. Which is, which could be incredibly encouraging as well as very humbling. You know, when Peter, um, going back to this moment between Peter and Jesus, Peter has this revelation. Jesus is like, dude, good on you. You, my father's revealed something incredible to you. And on this revelation, I'm going to build my church. And again, a mixture of metaphors. Peter's the rock. Jesus is the rock. There's this rock that is the truth of his death and resurrection. All of these things. And Jesus knows exactly what he's doing as he's blending these metaphors and these words. But right after that, Jesus begins to tell his disciples about how he's going to go to Jerusalem and he's going to be rejected by this generation. And he's going to suffer and die for the sins of the world. But come back 
three days later. And you know what Peter does? He pulls Jesus aside and begins to correct Rabbi Jesus. No, 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 that's a terrible idea. We don't want to do that. What, what is all this suffering talk? No, 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 let's go heal some more lepers or something super cool. We'll cast out some demons. Let's, no, because if you go to Jerusalem and die, like what, where does that leave us? What are the implications? We're meant to follow you, right? And how oftentimes do we make the mistake of Peter? When Jesus says, follow me, take up your cross, lose your life, then you'll gain it. Then you'll experience the life that I've secured for you. And we think, ah, no, no, no. Of course, we've read the story of Peter, so we know not to like say it out loud. But how often in our hearts, we think, no, Jesus, I don't want to die to myself. What I really want you to do is affirm my agenda, my plans, my house, my building project. That's why I go to church. That's why I sing songs to you. That's, that's, that's the purpose of my religious activity to get you to like sign off on my plan. And Jesus flips it and he says, no, no, no. I'm not going to sign off on your plan. I'm calling you to die to your plan and trust me. Trust me with all of your life. Follow me and you'll experience true life. But that's very difficult. It's very humbling. I think it would or should cause us to periodically evaluate like our own hearts as we stand before God. You guys know me, I'm, I'm a, I, I think I'm a habitual encourager. All I really, don't laugh. I just want to remind people of how much Jesus loves them and how there's hope when you trust and follow him. There's hope in this world. But there's, there's some other things to say as well. Jesus, he, he challenges his disciples. You know how he responded to Peter? I mean, it was, it was pretty severe. He said, get behind me, Satan. Peter, you, you, you've, you've lost your mind. Your thinking is demonic. And so that's a real challenge. And I think we need, to, we need to embrace that challenge periodically. Where am I at? What's going on in my heart? Am I simply trying to get Jesus to follow me and affirm my plans? Or am I continuing to learn how to die to myself and submit my will to his will, to obey him, even when it crosses my will. When Jesus calls something sin that I'd rather like, that I, I've somehow built a whole identity around, and now Jesus is calling me to confess and forsake an aspect of my life, Yes, absolutely. That's what Jesus does regularly. And then we lose our life again and we follow him and we begin to experience a life that we couldn't even have dreamt up for ourselves. 
because life is better. It's always better. So where are you at? What's going on in your heart? Are you trying to get Jesus to simply bless you and affirm your stuff and, and give you the thumbs up on your plan? Or are you learning how to surrender more of your life, more of your stuff, more of your time, more of your attitude, more of your heart, more of your identity, more of your whatever it might be? And say, okay, Jesus, here I am once again. It's all I've got. Of course, the encouraging part, so that's the challenging part. The encouraging part is that you may be coming in this place already feeling like that dead, worthless rock on the ground. You are that stone that's been rejected by men. And you're coming in here like, man, I've got nothing. In fact, I'm rather convinced that I don't know if Jesus would even want me if I offered my life. All I've ever known is rejection. All I've ever been told is you're stupid, you're ugly, you're unwanted, and it's only a matter of time before these people reject you like everyone else. And Jesus would say to you, you rejected stone, but I call you precious. I chose you when you were this dirty rock halfway buried in the ground. I sought you out. Everyone else just sees dirt. I see a precious gem. I see a diamond in the rough. I see someone who was born for greatness. I choose you and I have a special place for you in my house. I've given you gifts. I've created you for a reason. You are loved and you have a purpose. And I'm inviting you to be a part of what I'm building. In fact, in the house of Jesus, if you come in thinking like, I'm here, I'm here, just tell me where to sign up, I've got gifts, I'm awesome. In fact, that's why I'm here, I'm so awesome, I needed to find a church that I could share my awesomeness with. And I know that I'm like totally awesome, but I'm here to become more awesome, and this sort of attitude, and Jesus is like, yeah, you know what, you should go sit at the kiddie table. You who thinks that you're just going to like take your place at the seat of honor, you should go sit at the back of the room and learn humility for a minute. I'm going to deal with you. You're thinking like Satan. That's, that's Jesus. He makes the whip. And he's like, look, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to clean house. But if you come in and you sit at the back, you're like, man, I feel so dirty. So I'm just going to hide back here and hope to God no one tries to look me in the eyes. I'm just... I'm just, this is how I live my life. I can't even look at you like straight in the eyes. Because I'm just, I live in shame. I live in shame. And Jesus would say, hey, you. Yeah, you, the one who's, who's heavy, laden, who's weary, who's exhausted. Who's been living life in a perpetual state of rejection. Yeah, you. Come here chosen you you're precious you're precious come home I've got a place for you so he places us in his house this is the house that Jesus is building I hope this is the house that we are building with Jesus we're co-laborers with Christ 
We get to be the building and the builders. And eventually, in fact, Peter, he says, not only are we the spiritual house, but we are the royal priesthood inside. We, we, once we're in the house, we get to actually participate with Jesus as like priests. We become mediators of God's grace. Not, not keepers, but conduits of God's grace. So when others come in and they're hiding in the back, we can be the ones who come in and be like, hey, come here, come here, come here, come here. Dude, I got to tell you something. Yeah, yeah, you, you, yeah, yeah, the guy who won't look me in the eyes. Come here, come here. Let me tell you something. Jesus loves you. You don't believe me? Okay, well, give me, give me a few years. Give me the chance to demonstrate it to you. Let me introduce you to some people. Maybe, maybe you won't believe my words. Will you give us a chance to embody God's grace in a way that you can actually feel it? Feel it. Experience it firsthand. Taste and see how good our king is. And we get to be like priests, mediators of God's grace. We get to serve one another. And we become the sacrifice, just like Jesus. What's the sacrifice? I get to lay my life down for my brothers and sisters. That's what Jesus described as friendship. John chapter 15. No greater love is there than this for a friend to lay his life down for another. And we become living sacrifices. That's the house that Jesus is building. This is the house of Grace City. I hope, I hope. You guys want to build something together? Can you rise with me? Let us arise and build. Let us arise and build. Let us strengthen our hands for the good work. That's another sermon. Let us strengthen our hands for the good work. Lord Jesus, would you help us? Thank you for the way you do seek us out. You choose us, each one of us. Not after we've got everything all put together and, and, and somehow we're impressive enough to, to deserve your attention. But Lord, while we're that dead stone lying in the dirt, you come along and you say, come home. Lord Jesus, thank you for coming into our mess and suffering for us. Lord, making a way for us to come home. Lord, it's only possible because of who you are and what you've done for us. That we might participate in this new life, this resurrection life. Jesus' body wasn't just reanimated. He was resurrected, which means he began the new age of the Spirit, as Paul describes it in Romans. The age of resurrection life. Father, would you help us? As we find our place in your family, as you place us in your body, 
Would you help us to, to be the royal priesthood you call us to be? That we would encourage one another, that we would give grace to each other, that we would love each other the way you love us so, so well. Would you teach us but to surrender more to you every day. That we would lay our lives down for one another. For you are good. You are good.